Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey there, listener. Welcome to the Deep Share Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rouse. And for the last couple of decades, I've slowly been opening my eyes to a very different world than the one I grew up hearing about. And the more conversations I have with interesting people, the more mystifying this world becomes. So without further ado, let's get deep. We've got science to celebrate demons in this house. Come on! There's rebellion in the wind. It will be crushed. Everything I've said is true, it's real. Welcome back to the Deep Share Podcast. Tonight, I am honored on my birthday, no less. I wow. have yes, I have returning guest and best-selling author, Freddie Silva. How are you doing, Freddie? Pretty good. Happy welcome birthday. Back. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, welcome back to the you show. Can repay, you can repay the compliment 10 days from now. It'll be my birthday. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? I'm going to see you in like 10 days. Is How close to your birthday is that That uh, little gathering that the we're day doing? afterwards. It just yeah. occurred to me. Uh, I never, oh, man. I never said, get around to celebrating it. But uh, yeah, I think we'll owe each other beer or something. Absolutely. That sounds good. We'll have to clink over an Allagash or something. Oh, twist my arm. <laughs> so the reason why I wanted you to come back after you, the first interview we did was focused mainly around the Missing Lands book that you did. Uh-huh. And now you've come out with Scotland's Hidden Sacred Past. And this book blew my mind in so many ways, especially now that I'm more learned in uh, ancient symbolism and, and uh you know, following sources wherever they take me and listening to the people of the regions as you taught me. Uh, man, the connections that I've made on my own and coming back to your work now is uh, really tying some things together. And I really appreciate this book. Oh, and good. And a great journey. Yeah, it's about time someone did something on Scotland because no one knows where the stuff came from. And the biggest surprise was that uh, we tend to think of civilization coming through Europe, going through France, then up through Britain, and then Scotland, well, there's nowhere else to go. Mm. But actually, it's the other way around. Uh, They skirted the whole of Britain as though it was not a very nice place. And they started at the top end of Scotland, not even in Scotland itself. They went to the islands first, went around the islands and connected to people that were coming in through the Mediterranean in Ireland. I had no idea. I didn't see that one coming at all. It's interesting. I wonder if Europe was inhospitable because of like climate or geographical things, or if it was just the the inhabitants there. Perhaps uh, pretty much all three. Uh, yeah, was, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the end of the ice age caused absolute havoc. I mean, there were all these ice dams uh, that were breaking. Uh, there would often be uh, big floods coming from Europe into the Mediterranean, mm. and at the same time, you have the whole Doggerland area, which is basically the uh, shallow area called the North Sea now, which in 6000 BC was dry land and suddenly whoosh, the sea level rises and it's disappeared. So there's a lot of uh, climate change due to meteorites, plasma discharges from the sun, and people literally were being forced. This is the strange irony. They were being forced to go from a place that we would equate with being a very temporal climate, which is Eastern Europe, the Black Sea, uh, the Mediterranean, and they're being forced north towards Orkney and the Scottish Islands, which is the last place in the world where you really want to live, uh, unless you really like, uh, well, lots of uh, rain, wind, and uh, very little sunshine for half of the year. Uh, but uh, yeah, they, they were kind of following the place where they could grow things. Uh, that was really the fundamental drive. That makes sense. So let's get into it. Um, let's give the audience a little background on this book itself and, and you know, 
what was the process like of getting over there? Because I know you like to get your hands dirty. You like to talk oh, yeah. to the people involved with the myths that surround an area. What was it like doing this book? It was very difficult because no one knows anything about the uh, area. How, the, how do we get these megaliths? How do we get the stone circles? We have these horn mounds, which are like passage mounds with a, a shape like a crescent moon at the front. They're not local. They come from the Mediterranean. And then you have these uh, strange, iconic towers called the, uh, the Duns or the Brocks, uh, which have these beehive cha uh, chambers, which there's nothing in Britain that even looks like them. You'd have to go to Sardinia to find that information. And uh, it, it turns out that I put all this down just to give it a little bit of, you know, usually when you can't go anywhere, you leave it alone. It, it just means that you don't know what the hell you're doing. Uh, so you kind of go away. You just leave it be. And uh, all I had was some scratchings that were written down by the Scandinavians when they first arrived in Orkney. They talked about these mysterious people that were dressed in white uh, clothes and they were connected to the sacred sites. And they were called the Pape and the Petty, but no one knows anything about them. That was the only clue that we had. We don't know where the names uh, of the stone circles came from. It was just a complete misnomer. So I figured, okay, well, let's put that aside for the time being and go and play. And I ended up in uh, Sardinia of all places. And uh, as soon as I landed there, there are 6,000 of these conical towers. And I suddenly realized, oh, this is where it came from. Well, let's find out where what's connected with, with these towers. Now, the official story is that it was all to do with uh, protection against raiders. Now, anyone who's gone to these towers knows that it won't house more than six people, a dozen at the most comfortably, and there's 6,000 of them. Uh, you can't convince me that you're going to basically put six people, you're going to take all this trouble to build these towers, put six people in there to protect them from raiders. And all you have to do is put three people outside the tower with spears or bows and arrows, and you can starve people to death within a week because there's no way to get uh, much food in there. You can't get water in there, mm -hmm. and there's no uh, means of um, toiletry, if you know what I mean. So it would have been very, very harsh conditions. I didn't buy that for a second, and they called, it, they called them the Nuraji. And nobody in uh, that part of the world knows what a Nuraji is. Well, it turns out that uh, it's an Armenian word uh, it means the uh, priestly caste. And suddenly I'm, talk I'm looking at one-on-one one about the priestly caste in the Orkney Islands and the priestly caste in Sardinia with an Armenian connection. And I figured, what would be the chances that someone from Armenia moved in 6,000 BC across Europe to northern Scotland, an island, and founded this megalithic civilization? And boom, suddenly the door just opened. I mean, there were connections going everywhere. I was getting books about the uh, mythology of Armenian language, which is absolutely incredible place to go. It uh, really began to explain what the sites in uh, Orkney were all about, uh, because the names are actually split in Old Armenian, and they mean exactly what the place means. So suddenly, I was on a completely different turn. And this is what I like, uh, what I do, because I have no set plan. I don't know where I'm going. I just have an idea, I have a curiosity, and I go, well, what's this about? And you just let things fall where they may. And sometimes they don't go anywhere. It's right. just the way it is. But sometimes uh, the gods have a way of opening the doors to the curious and people who are just passionate about their work. And before you knew it, there's an entire book there. So that's kind of where it all went and uh, how it started. That's great. Well, I'm glad you've done it because, and uh, for a lot of reasons, especially since I'm Irish and um, I've ah. learned a lot about the Irish and Scottish heritage. And um, I actually had the opportunity to go over to Ireland and walk along the Giants Causeway and learning about the Giants from the very normal minded tourism, tourism perspective. You know, it's all fae folk and fairy folk and all that. But it's I I'm wondering now, like about. Fionn McCool, McCool and uh, Benedon and, and these Irish Scottish giants that supposedly forged this area. Yeah. And I wonder now because of how many connections to legitimate or possibly legitimate human bloodlines that could have been much bigger than us or something like that. Do you think that there's still a separation between these myths and the actual giants or yeah. one in the same? Uh, actually, the uh, it's funny because you actually have to look at the history of Ireland 
uh, to understand this. When the Catholic Church was trying to basically assimilate the whole of Europe to their way of thinking, they were literally, uh, they were butchering their way through Europe. I mean, right. this is a historical fact. And when they got to Ireland, they thought that they had eradicated every single vestige of this divine bloodline, which went back to Mesopotamia. Now, the connection there is that Mesopotamian people came from the Armenian highlands. And if you go back 12,000 years, you have these people called the people of Anu, who were the Anunnaki. And they're not nefarious people, as people tend to make them out to be. They're actually quite pleasant. And uh, they're the, kind of the concept of where we got the idea of the gods from. Uh, right. They're the ones that gave us the accoutrements of civilization. So they can't be nasty people at the same time. Uh, they weren't perfect either, uh, but that's another story. And uh, they were described as being very, very tall, not giant tests by our standards, but just very, very tall. Uh, so when the Catholic um, church gets to Ireland, they realize that there's this still incredible mythology of these tall people connected to this divine bloodline called the Tuatha de Danan. Mm. who originally were called the Tuatha de Danu, around the Black Sea, who before that were called the Anunnaki. It's the same people, and the, the, the name just changes through time. We're talking 6,000 years of history in a few seconds here. Mm. So they began to rewrite the history and mythologize, or, or at least how we understand mythology to be, because mythology is a theatrical device that helps people explain real events from one culture to the next in a way that you can remember it. Uh, right. Because if you just tell it, the story straight, you're bound to forget it, and then you'll embellish it. Mm -hmm. But if you put a nice sort of theatrical theme around it, you will remember it. For the same reason that we'll be, still be discussing Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader a hundred years from now. Because exactly. there's that method, but behind it, there's a real story of the development of a, of a real person from light to dark and the redemption of that person, well, the same thing was happening in Ireland. So in order for the Catholic Church to basically take over the entire mythology of people who still believed in this tall race of shining people, that was their nickname, the Shining Ones, um, they fictionalized the whole thing. And suddenly the people who were called the fair folk became fairies. That's where the idea comes from. Uh, but the, if you go back about 3,500 BC, when the Tuat de Danu finally arrived in Ireland and became the Tuat de Danan, uh, it turns out that they had bumped into this very tall people called the Formori, who also had been spread around the uh, Scottish islands as well. And they, by the description that we're given of very, very tall people, very brutish, with, covered with red hair, are the same people who are described in the Pacific, in South America, the Far East, and in Mesopotamia as being the vestiges of, and this is where I'm going to have to condense the story, uh, they are the vestiges of a very bad marriage between a small group of the Shining Ones, who are called the Watchers, uh, a, a particular group of them, for some reason that we don't know, they, uh, they went against instructions, they married human women, and they basically begot very, very tall children. Now, their offspring became the giants covered with red hair. And this is, we know this from the books of Enoch, who, by the way, was one of the Anunnaki. His real name was Emed Ur-Anu. He was not Enoch. That's a Hebrew uh, sort of variation of the story. Uh, and so... When the flood takes place uh, 11,000 years ago, the idea was to wipe out these giant red-headed giants because they were mad. They were brutal. They were engaging in warfare. They were teaching humans how not to behave, and they would eat people for fun. Now, some of them obviously survived because they're still alive in the Solomon Islands in the Second World War, and the American military actually met them several times, and that's why they slept with a revolver under their pillow, not because of the Japanese, but because they said because of these very tall, 15-foot-tall giant people covered with red hair. Whoa! They've washed up on the shores of beaches in New Zealand only 30 years ago. Uh, so this is all historical facts. So the, the irony is that when they two other Danu and the Anunnaki moved to Ireland to escape their history of having to deal with these very nasty people, they're still living there. So this is the reason why in Britain we still have thousands of giant graves. And uh, anyone, I, I have known several uh, archaeologists who gave up being archaeologists because they witnessed firsthand the destruction of all of these bones because archaeology is a very conservative medium. They can't account for the tallness of these bones and skeletons that they keep finding in places called the giant's graves, which are still there to this very day. So it's absolutely true. The myth is correct because it's a historical appreciation and a depiction of what was taking place, I'd say about five to 6,000 years ago in that part mm -hmm. of the world. 
Wow. That's, that's mind blowing about world war, about the world war. Like I, I didn't, I had never heard that. I've, of course we've heard, uh, you know, conspiracies about the giant of Kandahar over in uh, Afghanistan. And that's wild. And it's un, unfounded. There's no evidence of it, but now that kind of seems like, you know, maybe it could be one of these guys. Cause it's described in a yeah. similar fashion that it came out of a cave ready to eat everybody. So, yeah. And uh, they're, they're still living up in the highlands of uh, the Solomon islands to this very day. And the villagers uh, to this very day, they'll say, well, we respect them. They used to be part of a very, kind of a different race of people. They were a parallel culture. Uh, the, the flood wiped them out and we leave them alone. They want to be left alone. They can't breathe with anyone else. They're dying. Uh, and they get from A to B in the mountains through these caves, which are lit by this lichen, which glows uh, in the dark. That's how they can see. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this in New Zealand as well. It's a specific form of lichen that in 10 minutes, you can see where you're going in total darkness. Wow. You don't need flashlights. So to this very day, they're still talking about them and the bodies are still washing up. So I haven't heard the end of this story yet. So we've gone from science fiction and conspiracy to actual Holy fact. crap. Can, yeah, that's you, unbelievable. You can, you can actually validate this stuff, which is what uh, you know research is all about. Next right. time. Yeah, and you know, that's a completely different uh, podcast altogether. We could go down the Bigfoot trail and you know connect <laughs> it there, but we won't. Not this time, at least. Um, the we've we've also you and I have talked about the people of the serpent, and uh, you talk a lot about the Tua de Danan in your book, and um, I believe I have seen connections vaguely to the tribe of Dan phonetically, and also their symbolism as well, because the tribe of Dan's symbol is a serpent in some cases. It can yeah. be a horse as well. And um, this, just from my perspective, where I'm coming from in the Scandinavian folklore that I've been looking into, oddly enough, includes this tribe of Dan as well. And I'm just curious where, if there's any uh, anything in there that that uh, pings for you and if there's any uh, interesting points there for you. Yeah, I, I looked into that as a matter of course and found out that the whole tribe of Dan thing was really made up uh, in the early Victorian era to justify uh, f- following the two other Danu across Europe and ah. then putting a Hebrew uh, thing connected to the Bible. Because back then, a lot of the archaeologists were paid for by the church uh, in order to validate the facts. And uh, this is an absolute truth that they believe that the earth was only created in uh, 4004 BC. So if they could pay the archaeologists to uh, dig up information to validate what was going on in the uh, the world, great. That means that the, uh, the Bible is a real book. Well, this is where the problems began because the, uh, the two other Danu were already 6,000 years older than the story in the Bible. So they had to make some kind of connection in order to bring about the supremacy of the biblical content. Uh, and again, this is just by following the connections to see where this concept of the tribe of Dan came from. Mm. Uh, there is no substance behind it. It was completely, it was either fabricated or it was just made up because it seemed like a, such an easy connection to do. But mm. without the understanding of what was going on in Armenia, and a lot of this has been brushed under the carpet, and there are Armenian excuse me, <clears throat> scholars who are now coming to the fore. One of them who ironically helped me write my book on scholarship. Scotland. Uh, little did he know at the time. Um, we are getting more of an understanding of how much of the story from that part of the world has been completely politicized to give superiority to other people who live locally, if you know what I mean. So mm-hmm. that whole idea of the tribe of Dan really didn't make any sense. It went absolutely nowhere. And the idea that this original tribe came from across the uh, Ukrainian steppes, kind of an unfortunate story at the moment. They came through the Ukrainian steppes all the way to Mongolia, around the Black Sea, into Bulgaria and Romania. That can be validated. And we have the names, we have the connections to Egyptian royalty because they're intermarrying with the Egyptian royalty. And from there, they eventually end up in Scotland and Ireland and they founded their royal houses. Mm, Interesting. Okay. It's amazing how much background work one has to do to, uh, uh, to really sort of, you have to almost question the information that we're given all the way through history. And the more you question it, the more you go deeper into research, the more you realize a lot of it's made up. Yeah. And it's not until you can fully understand like multiple points of view and put them together next to each other, where you start seeing the parallels and you start seeing where things start to become a little too unique from one case to the next. 
Um, but yeah, the connections are definitely where my head stays and like the shiny ones, the, uh, you know, these gods, these Lords of Anu. Um, so we're tracing them to Sardinia and the Armenian highlands. Where can we trace them beyond that? Well, then there's a big sort of area where they uh, split into two. Uh, once they're around, um, it, become, it becomes a bit of a, a muddled history lesson. Uh, by about five, 6,000 BC, we get the word Scythia coming into the equation, just to really make your head hurt. And the <laughs> Scythian culture was huge at one point. It went all the way from uh, you know, India, Mongolia, all the way through to today's Bulgaria. It's a huge chunk of land, uh, but primarily around the Ukrainian steppes. And um, they basically split into two. There was a, a royal house that went two ways. And one of them, uh, and again, we go back to the idea of the fair folk. They were, uh, they were fair because they were very fair-skinned. It's what we mm. describe as Caucasian today. Uh, I'm sorry if that upsets a few people, but I'm not into political correctness. I'm into cor historical correctness here. Same um, the, these were determined to be one of the most divine bloodlines on the face of the planet. And they are, renowned, they are known as this even in the Pacific because they were traveling that far. That's how back this story goes. Anyway... They, when they were part of the House of Scythia, they split into two. And the, um, the light-skinned, blue-eyed, uh, blonde people eventually go north to Denmark, eventually to Finland, Scandinavia, Norway, and then boom, all the way around into Orkney and the Scottish islands. At the same time, the southern group goes into Greece. It goes round into Malta, where we have a lot of long-headed people uh, who basically have the same DNA as the people in Armenia. And they go around to Sardinia, where they settle for a long time. So this is where the connection starts coming together. We have this culture, which comes out of nowhere, all the way around the Mediterranean, from the Scythians via the Armenians into Sardinia. They stay there for a while, and then they move around the Mediterranean, through um, uh, Portugal, northern Spain, Basque country, and from there, they migrated to Southern Ireland. And that's where you get the light-skinned, red-haired, green-eyed people. Mm. And the two of them were part of the same strain. Uh, one of them became the Picts, uh, which are you know, historical facts. And yep. then the other one became the, the divine or royal bloodline of Ireland and Scotland, who were the two other than none. So that's essentially what happened in a, in a small nutshell. So would you put, or maybe you don't speculate, or maybe you don't uh, come to a conclusion on this, but um, do you speculate that we're dealing with strictly human origins in these cases? And we're talking about strictly like Caucasian people from an older time period? Well, that was a question I was asking the missing lands, and I didn't have any information either way. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's fun to speculate as long as you keep it that way in terms of it's just speculation. <laughs> right. The more I heard about this story in the Pacific and South America and Central America, everywhere around the world, you have people who are dark skinned 12,000 years ago that said, Emphatically, yes, there was a parallel civilization of what we call gods. And a god back then was someone who understood the laws of nature. It doesn't mean a white guy with a beard. That's not right. what it means. That's a Christian development. But these people were lighter skinned, they said. They were very much taller than us. And they called them human-like, but not quite human, because <laughs> sometimes their skulls were also elongated. And they had unusual blonde hair or, or uh, red hair. But they revered them because they gave us the accoutrements of civilization. They helped us get to where we are today, for better or for worse. So there was a mutual respect. And that tells me that these people were very much humanoid because they were very comfortable with them. We as a race were comfortable with these people. They were just unusual, but we weren't frightened by them. Uh, so that tells me something that they were here for a long time. Now, where did they go back to? Now, that's the big question. Uh, I put out a documentary about a year ago called uh, Orion, the Origin of the Gods, yep. as a kind of a speculative thing to go into, because I found so many connections between these people, whether they were called Anunnaki or the Vidakosha and their Hai Hai Wapanti, which is the same people, by the way, yeah. or the Urukeu of New Zealand and Easter Island and Australia, the same people. You just have to know what the words mean. And every single time I rubbed against anyone's mythology, it was always Orion. These people originally came from Orion physically, or they're associated with Orion, or we all came from Orion, including the human race. I've heard this in many, many parts of the world. And after a while, after many, many thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of years, we lost the connection physically to go from A to B. So we either had to develop some kind of what they, the Hopi called the flying shields to get us from A to B, 
spaceships, in other words, uh, or we designed, according to the uh, tra traditions, we designed specific buildings which would change the laws of physics to allow us to go from A back to the center of Orion. And then after that, as we get into the historical era, we lost that connection. So now we do it shamanically. But either way, every culture on the face of the earth talks about this association between the original gods, this parallel civilization and the concept of Orion. But again, the fact that we were, you know, we were not sort of, we didn't find these people un, uh, uh, sort of um, crazy to begin with, or they kind of look like us, but not quite like, like us, and we were comfortable, tells me that there's a humanoid connection, even if it comes from somewhere else in the universe. Mm. Uh, at this point, you're dealing with something that's so, so old uh, <laughs> that you don't know if you're ever going to find the information to back it up. But the fact that so many indigenous cultures talk about it and maintain the idea tells me there's a lot of truth behind it. Absolutely. And, and you're doing it the right way. You're getting boots on the ground in so many different places and that's all that's all we can do. We have to gather perspectives as many as possible and, and put them against each other. And that's where Absolutely. I'm coming from, from the uh, what I mentioned before we recorded the box saga, which is a fairly little known in the Western world story. It's an origin story, but it parallels a lot of interesting points. Like you mentioned in your book, an island or an area that was kind of a safe haven from an ice age. That, you know, it was, you know, you people were able to survive there during the Ice Age, but they were cut off. Uh, that's a parallel to this story as well. So we have a lot of these stories that seem to be talking about the same thing at, yeah. one, at some point or another. Um, meanwhile, the box saga keeps it very human, regardless of where we can speculate. But I think that's fine because we can keep it earthly and see how that all lines up first. And if it goes further, great. Yeah. Right. But um, what's interesting about this saga is it talks about a uh, paradise time, which of course is very common in every origin story oh, absolutely. Um, in the North, very where the, where Helsinki is now apparently used to be the North pole, according to the saga, where there was a massive, uh, cataclysm that literally tilted the earth. Uh, this is their origin. And now, you know, everything's changed. But at that time, the North Pole was actually the paradise time with the sun going around and everything. And that at that time, the entire earth was all tropical races, but mm. connected in, you know, different places, but all using the same system. And I heard you mention at one point, I think it might have been not directly in your book, but in uh, a documentary on Gaia that you did on this topic, that it's kind of seemed like they were setting something up for future generations, a system in a way. And the box cycle also follows that as well, talking about this birthing system, a way to live, a way to survive from generation to generation that all came from this northern location and yeah. source of information that... And when the ice age occurred, when that tilt happened, that North area was cut off. Oddly enough, like you mentioned, because of the Gulf stream that yeah. would go that way, completely different area that we're talking about Orkney, you know, Finland, but regardless, the stories remain the same. And it, it boggles my mind that we're, you know, we're getting, it feels like we're getting somewhere here. Finally. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it sounds like the Egyptian story. It sounds like the Hopi story. And right. it's like the Far Eastern story. And they described three different ice ages. There's, I think it was the Middle Ice Age that seems to correspond with the Earth actually flipping on its axis. Because in Central right. America, in fact, I'm just doing a documentary on it right now. Uh, the Central America, they talk about the two twins that have, you know, this, their responsibility is to make sure that uh, the poles stay where they are. And one day they got distracted and uh, the poles flipped. Uh, well, that's exactly what the Hopi talked about as well, a time of indescribable cold. And in Egypt, they said that south was north and north was south. And mm. not only that, but the sun rose where it now sets and it set where it now rises. So even the earth is going up like this backwards. Uh, and the Greeks picked up on this when they inherited the stories. So, yeah, I mean, everybody was if they didn't experience it worldwide, the story had to be shared from a common point a commonality of people who experienced this in order to talk about it, mm -hmm. uh, which means that, you know, uh, and again, going back to your original point about, you know, why were they sort of so adamant about, you know, making sure that this stuff uh, survived? It was to make sure that there was a continuation 
in the story, uh, just because you know you've cut you you know your Earth is destroyed as an ice age and there's meteorites and you know we got nothing to whine about in this day and age. <laughs> Reading some of these stories, we're a bunch of whiners. Inflation, that's nothing compared to what they had to go through, because they realised <laughs> that life happens in the round. It's cyclical. You know, in the West, we've got used to the life being linear, beginning, difficult life, and an end. No, for them, it was round. In fact, it was spiral. It keeps spiraling like this outwards. And they reckoned, you know, cataclysms have always been here. They're part and parcel of uh, the physical world. So the point is, people will survive. And it's those people that we have to empower to then not start like cave people, but to start off from a point where we left off. So the idea of building big monuments that they're not going to be moved by earthquakes, tidal waves, or anything using big rocks, to me, made a lot of sense that they were putting this for other people like us in the 21st century who have lost the plot. We're so disconnected from reality, you know, with social media alone. It's just uh, there's no oh, connection yeah. between what people read on social media and what's happening in the real world. I think they had a gift to foresee what was going on. So they would build things in order to make sure that evolution continues. It's an ongoing process. So when I get to Orkney and I'm looking at their three stone circles, not two, but there's actually three. Um, it was, you know, sitting there between gales, force winds and rain, looking down at this big isthmus and going, wait a minute, there's three stone circles and one of them is slightly offset. Now, what are the chances that that could be a mirror image of Orion? Boom, you've got that connection now. The rest was just pure mathematics, looking at the way that Orion first appeared in the sky relative to the three stone circles. And now you have a date which is actually memorialized in the local record. Not only that, but, and this is the best part, the, the Egyptians and the Osiris and his crew uh, and the followers of Horus and the Shining Ones, they were also present in 10,400 BC at Giza, building this pyramid, which thanks to Robert Boval and Adrian Gilbert, we can now figure out that there's a sky-ground relationship. It gives us the date between the belt stars of Orion and the position of the pyramids. Well, one of those lovely moments where the universe just pops an idea into my head and said, well, why don't you overlay a survey of the Giza pyramids over the freestone circles of Orkney that seem to be mirroring the bell stars of Orion, you know, 5,000 years later. So we now have that technology. We have an accurate survey. I just literally plonked the survey over the three and the actual points of the pyramid touched the centers of each of the circles with one of them offset. So and now we've got a connection here because the same people, the same shining people are being described in Orkney and in the Scottish islands as they are in Egypt and elsewhere. They're dressing the same way. In fact, one of their names, the Petty, the name comes from an Egyptian uh, priest, which is a Petr, uh, which drove, uh, yeah, they, they were dressed in white. They were much taller and they were the people who looked after the temple. So thank God for the Scandinavians who remember this story that was told to them by the local people that said, oh yeah, they were associated with the local temples. No one had any idea that that was actually an Egyptian term. And the Papa, the other one, that's an Armenian name. You took uh, it out of my mouth. Yep. <laughs> and it exists to this very day. It's a, a wise person, a wisdom keeper, or a, a person who's associated with sacred sites. This is where we get uh, the Pope from, the word Pope. That's where it comes from. Uh, and suddenly now you've got a connection. You've got a continuation of culture stretching from one part of Europe all the way to the northern extreme of Europe. Yeah, my friend Dan, Dan and I, who do a show uh, together called The Deep Chill, where we kind of dig into a lot of these Scandinavian myths, um, we made the, the connection of the god Ptah to possibly turning into Peter and also meaning Papa or father in a way. And when you say wise person, I mean, you think about like the father figure. It's very interesting where we get the further we go back, it seems from my perspective, what I'm finding out is that phonetics are really more than just puns. And isn't it interesting that puns are looked at so poorly in the comedic sense? You know, it's the lowest form of humor, yet it seems to somehow be the key to. Uh, man, dare I say a down-to-earth realistic version of figuring out what the story of Babel might have actually been about, of an oh, yeah. actual, like, you know, we can use the story of Babel with many allegories, and I tend to lean towards allegory when it comes to biblical stories, yeah. but then again, it does seem like we literally had an original language that perhaps bound us all together, and it's very yeah. interesting. 
And the ancients always communicated through metaphor and allegory anyway. Uh, mm -hmm. You can't take these things too literally. And once you stop doing that, uh, the, uh, the uh, examination of the past opens up dramatically. Uh, and yeah, uh, I mean, Batar, uh, I don't think there's a connection to, uh, to Papa or Pope, uh, but it's, uh, okay. because it's slightly different. Egyptian is a notorious little language to master. It really is. It's full of little subtleties. Mm -hmm. But... Um, it is the foundation of Peter. That's where it comes from, because okay. Petar is the foundation upon which the temple stands. He is the, the god responsible for listening to uh, Tehote or Jehuti or Toph, as the Greeks called him, uh, the god of wisdom, and saying, hey, I can build that out of rock. And right. boom, Petar becomes the architect, uh, makes the plans you know, by the intellectuals concrete on the face of the earth. So when Jesus talks about Peter being the rock upon which I put my church, Jesus just given away where his teaching comes from, you know, right. because Peter and Petar, they're part of the same etymological root. Mm -hmm. uh, but Petar, which is kind of related to Petar, not the same word, but they are associated to the temple. They're the priests who look after the temple. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they were still calling them that way in Persia in about, what, 3,000 years ago? So that concept of the Egyptian um, priest still remains in that part of the world. Wow. This is this is pretty. Yeah, language stuff. is a very interesting thing. You've got to learn yeah. about the origin of things. Oh, yeah. And in fact, it's funny that you brought that up about puns. The Egyptians apparently were the ones who came up with the, with puns, as far as we know. Uh, and there's a great story where the, the uh, god of wisdom, Jehuti, uh, I like calling things by their real name. Uh, <laughs> Jehuti walks in and there's Patar and Amun that are sitting on the throne. And these were real people, by the way. I mean, they were not just ethereal concepts. These were real people who portray those concepts in physical form. Mm -hmm. This is where archaeologists go crazy because they think that we're talking about the sun, the sky god and ethereal things. Yeah, you're right. But there were people who portrayed those things physically and they took on those names. So there's many Osiris's, there are many Patar, there are many yes, Amun titles around, which also drives them crazy. Priestess, anyway, yes. so the god of wisdom <laughs> walks into the room and says, hey, uh, I've got a great idea. Why don't we take all that we know that we communicate telep telepathically and through sound, and I can create something called writing? And, uh, you know, Patar goes, well, you are indeed very clever, uh, Jehuti, that you are able to take all the knowledge that we've learned over millennia and condense it into written form to teach humans how to communicate. But beware that the written words and the spoken words are only mirror images, very thin mirror images of the sound of the intent behind it. And people yes. will use words in order to justify anything and fake uh, all kinds of stuff. Well, look at where we are today. Mm -hmm. But uh, the sound and the meaning, which is always in the heart and in the mind, that's the most important thing. So beware of, of words and letters yes. because they can be misused. But you know, off you go, good boy. <laughs> so in order, if people were starting to get too complacent about words and language, the Egyptians invented the pun so you can take the mick out of words so you wouldn't take it too seriously. Wow. And this is a real story. I had no idea That's that great. It existed. And, you know, the, that point about writing versus verbally translated stories, you know, I, and like you often do, you talk right to the local people who pass these myths down. You don't have them write a paper to you and have them email it to exactly. you. You talk to them because pronunciation gets distorted for you know not really it doesn't seem intentional i i would say if any part of this is intentional or nefarious it's just the knowledge that a game of telephone has been going on yeah. it's not that the game of telephone was necessarily caused nefariously does that exactly. sound does that make a little sense that's yeah, kind of usually comes in from people who are uh well they're bullies and they're <laughs> ignorant and they look at this and going hey that's a good idea i think i can uh, make some money out of this and i have to make a living mm. i can just confuse people distort the ideas and i can create something called religion or the uh, a, a funeral home you know you know mm -hmm. i mean the egyptians uh, priests when they realized that this honoring of the body and everything uh they said well wait a minute we can make money on this they will take people to the side and say, look at that dead guy over there. Look at where the vultures are pecking away at his, you know, they're taking his eyeballs out and, you know, slapping away on uh, uh, on his brain. You don't want to inherit that body when you come back from the afterlife. So, oh, no, I don't want that. No, you look terrible. Well, pay us 10 grand and we'll make sure that you get embalmed. So when you come back from the afterlife, you'll have a great body. 
to come back into it. Of course, boom, there you go. Well, the fact that you've taken your brain out and your heart and your eyeballs don't exist, doesn't seem to you know, uh, be a problem for anybody with the logic. But so mm. that's how it, it kind of began. It was to do with the misuse and the misappropriation of deep spiritual truths. And that's true of any era. And any age, even in this in the 70s, uh, in the whether it's you're in San Francisco or in Europe, you know, the whole hippie movement, there were great places where they were trying to recreate a paradisal world for really good reasons. And even within those uh, uh, communes, they also went to pot. There's a good pun. They went to pot uh, within a couple of years, but some of them survived. So it pretty much uh, exemplifies how the human race works. Yeah. Not everything is meant to be perfect. There are always going to be people who will always abuse and disuse the information, but some will succeed. And that's how we keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it for sure. So going a little bit back to Scotland here, um, this is technically unrelated, but I was curious if you've ever visited the Cairngorm National Park where that pyramid is. Have you well, heard the Cairngorms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Cairngorm. I'm just curious if there's some interesting history there that you might know about. Uh, I'm fascinated that we're finding more and more pyramids. I mean, not that this is just discovered, but like I got turned on to it and then found more pyramids in England and Europe, all the other places in Europe. And I'm just fascinated by it. Uh, even the fact that um, the Americas have more pyramids than I ever knew about, or at least pyramidal structures, you know, the yeah. mounds, this and that. It's very weird seeing more and more. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, central Scotland's very new. Uh, it was still covered by ice and snow up until about, what, 4,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So nothing much has happened there. That's one of the reasons why people had the skirts of the islands, because the islands were very much protected by the Gulf Stream, so they could right. grow uh, food there. It was a very nice time to live. Um, unlike now, everybody moved to the mainland about two and a half thousand BC when the weather again changed very dramatically. Mm-hmm. So there's what, uh, we don't know much about what was going on in central Scotland. And a lot of those uh, mountains are also natural pyramids. Uh, you have to really understand geology and especially the way that sandstone works, because there are certain ways that, uh, and Robert Schock and I have talked about this over several pints of beer. Mm-hmm. He says it's amazing and, and how shocking a lot of people think there are all these pyramids everywhere when they're in there. In fact, when you go there, they're actual hills, they're mountains, they're, it's real geology. And uh, there's one not far from where I live here in Maine, uh, which you go for a walk by the seaside and you swear there's a massive city made of big megalithic blocks. But if you know a bit of basic geology, you can see the striations and you can see how the granite splits in this part of the world because of the rapid cooling and uh, heating that goes on here between winter and summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some pretty severe changes in climate here. So we do. when you get the um, that sort of crystalline structure in certain types of geology, it will split in certain ways that makes it look like it's man-made. I mean, there's one in the Faroe Islands, which is further north of Orkney, which uh, when I first saw a picture of this, I thought, wow, that's a bit unusual for a pyramid. And then a bit of, uh, you know, a bit of legwork uh, actually turns out that it was the way it was shaped by erosion that uh, that particular rock comes out looking exactly like a beautiful pyramid. Mm. Uh, for the same reason that you also have, uh, you know, um, the Matterhorn in Switzerland. If you look at it from a certain light, in a certain light, it looks like a man-made structure, but it is a natural pyramid. Right. So, yeah, there are pyramids and then there are pyramids. You've got to, again, got to go there. A bit like the ones in Antarctic as well. I was uh, just going to bring that talk up. About yeah. the Antarctic pyramids. Well, until you go there and find out, you won't know. So right, right now it's in the let's find out bucket. Uh, I always I found it very. I hope there will be. You know, yeah, sure. That'd be great. Let's get some drone footage over those Antarctic quote unquote pyramids. But, you know, I, I remain skeptical there big time. Uh, considering why would you build a pyramid surrounded by so much other, you know, ge- geological, you know, in uh, inconsistencies there's just mountain yeah. ranges all around there so i think people might be grasping at straws where they can sometimes for sure i mean <laughs> it's uh i mean yes and no i mean we do have evidence that uh in 2600 bc the whole of the ross ice sea shelf was actually a uh, there was flowing water and there was a forest there that was only 4,000 years ago. Okay. So uh, Antarctica does go through big stages of freezing and thawing, much more That's than we true. thought. Uh, and I mean, there were maps that were found uh, allegedly by uh, Caliph al-Mamun in the pyramids, because uh, he'd heard from his predecessors that the pyramids, they, stuck, they took a lot of information out of there, but there were still maps and all kinds of weird things in there. 
and he went around blowing up holes to try and find out where they were. In fact, the, the way to get into the pyramid of the stage in Giza, that's what he did with dynamite. Uh, so thanks to him, we can find our way in, ironically. Uh, but uh, soon after that, all these strange maps were appearing in the Mediterranean that showed Antarctica ice-free. And that hasn't happened, as far as we know, uh, for about 14,000 years. So whoever drew those maps knew exactly where they were. And that uh, they were very accurate because we only found this out in, what, 1968? Yeah, where so we found the uh, the ability to Smith. take satellites and go under the ice and go, oh, Antarctica is actually two big islands with a big river in the middle. Well, that's what the map shows. So I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't a civilization down there at one point, but it's now so old and under so much ice. Right. Uh, I mean, if we stick around another 100 years, I'm sure we'll find it because it's, you know, it's melting so quickly that in our lifetime, we might even get to see this. But yeah, you just don't know. That's, yeah. And so I'm curious, um, this is going to take us in a little bit of a different direction, but I need your, uh, your, I need your perspective on this because this could just be silly, but <laughs> oh, you're I, be silly sometimes. <laughs> I read a book and I couldn't even get a physical copy. I got a, you know, just a, a PDF copy online of uh, ancient mystic oriental masonry. And in there, there, and this book was written in like 1893 or something like that. And it's talking about Egypt and America being one in the same. And it's the strangest text I've ever seen talking about how, you know, all the pyramids and everything. And it's talking about how masonry does not owe its debt to Egypt, but it owes it to America. But of course they were one in the same at that time. Mm. Do you think if there's any legitimacy or, and this isn't total hogwash, were they probably talking about some kind of uh, intellectual debt rather than, you know, that literally there were, you know, Egyptian, there was some sort of Egyptian culture here beforehand? Because I know that there's rumors about the, the Grand Canyon and having artifacts found or carvings that seem like they belong somewhere far, far away. So what do you do? You, have any idea about that i know that's kind of out of left field but i needed oh, someone smarter than me to figure this out oh i, I actually brushed upon this on the in the missing lands the previous book and uh, it goes back to the hopi and the zuni and their traditions and how they were helped from a sinking island in the pacific to where they are right. now in arizona uh, and New Mexico. Uh, mm. And if you start looking at the names of the people that helped them get there, there's a lot of connection to the Anunnaki and to the Armenian. There's a lot of Armenian in there. Okay. And I've only discovered this in the last couple of years. And uh, if you look at their stories, they also talk about these people that helped them get from island to island. Uh, and they are the same people that they're described in Easter Island or in South America or in Central America or in Japan or in China. So we're talking about a worldwide brother and sisterhood of this parallel civilization. And that's, I think that's where it comes from. Mm. There was a parallel culture and they lived as far as I could figure out on eight different islands around the world. Most of them are submerged now, or they mm. lived in places inland that behaved like islands, kind of like Tiwanaku in Bolivia. Uh, which is surrounded by Lake Titicaca back when it was built. So that was an island nation within a continent. Uh, these people are all connected uh, by the same purpose, the same method, the same physical description. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what they're describing this book. Again, it's metaphor. Uh, because okay. if you look at the true origins of Freemasonry, uh, you, you need to go back to the teachings of Enoch, which is Emed Ur-Anu, who's one of the Anunnaki. Right. So it immediately places him over 11,000 years ago in the Armenian highlands. Right. Uh, or you can go to Egypt because they also were part of the same group of people uh, because they were also described exactly in the same way. The uh, followers of Horus and the Anunnaki are one of the same people. They just call them by slightly different names because of geographical variation. Right. But if you look at the teachings, the core teachings of Freemasonry, uh, which is Scottish Rite Freemasonry, um, you look at the, the 17 basic teachings, which are most important, specifically the 17th is the most spiritual of all of them. And you then translate that into what was going on, where they got the information from. So you follow the line of the Scottish right through the Knights Templar, same people, they just mm -hmm. changed their name. Right. So to live another day. <laughs> they got it from the Arabs in the Near East. They got it from the Mandeans and Manichaeans and the other Ians in that part of the world. They went through the Essenes and they got it from the Persians. They got it from India. They got it from Japan. And I've found the earliest tradition of the 17 teachings, basic teachings of uh, Freemasonry 
to appear in Japan in 8000 BC. They're called the 17 Ways of Ise or Isis. Now, what's Isis doing in Japan in 8000 mm. BC, I wonder? So you see, this, this is what they mean about a global civilization. Right. So they weren't physically in North America, I don't think. At least we have no evidence for it, because if the Hopi were being moved there, then there couldn't have been anyone else before them. Uh, you, see, right. you see what I'm saying? Uh, so we don't know at this very point. It's still up in the air. Not that it didn't happen. So we're talking about a global culture that had right. different points of uh, connection in different eight different places around the world. And that's where the information comes from. So the earliest one is about 8,000 BC in Japan. But... The temple where it was also practiced happens also to be in Egypt. It's called the Assyrian, and it has a 17 side chambers still there to this very day. And it was actually a freestanding temple in 10,400 BC. So mm. that predates Japan. So we don't know how old this stuff is. Right. And we know that the Assyrian connects to Gobekli Tepe directly as well. So, yeah. Wow. It's all connected. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and well, I mean, you think about the, you know, Quetzalcoatl wasn't that far away. I mean, if these people were traveling everywhere and they had such a, you know, uh, leisurely means of doing so. Yeah. I can only imagine that something had to be going on in these precious, beautiful lands called North America at some point, oh, yeah. you know, especially with someone that close by it, among the Anunnaki, you know? So. Exactly. And I mean, if you listen to the uh, native people of North America and also to the uh, Maya who became Maya in 3100 BC, ironically, the same uh, year that uh, the first Pharaoh, and I quote, of a purely human bloodline takes the throne of Egypt. Uh, mm, <laughs> strange, a that's a strange story. A Pharaoh, a Pharaoh. Of purely human bloodline, because back before then, between the flood and Mena, that was who he was, uh, there was, what, 6,000 years where they were half human, half divine. So the uh, Shining Ones, the Anunnaki, they found a way to finally to succeed interbreeding with humans because they were running out of people with whom to interbreed. And that's where you get the lighter skin, the elongated skulls, the much taller people. They were the ones that were half human, half divine. Well, if you ask the Maya, I said, well, we've got all these calendars that go back 26,000 years. How the hell did we end up? You know, you have to be around for 26,000 years to know that the earth revolves on its axis over that period. And then you've right. got to measure it. That's already, you're already at 52,000 years. So they had to get the information from somewhere else. So they have a book called the Chilambalam, which means from the mouth of the Jaguar priest. And it talks about a very specific date on when their predecessors arrived in the Yucatan. And they were called the Its. There were uh, seven people. One of them was a woman who's the bloodline and the wisdom keeper. She was the sister and the wife of the leading guy called Itzamna. No one talks about Itzamna. We talk about Quetzalcoatl and Kukulkan, but there were three guys. And they were also um, uh, fronting seven uh, magician priests, just like in Egypt, just like in every other part of the world, and they escaped from a sinking island in the middle of the Atlantic after a global flood in a place called Atal. And the Aztec picked that up. They called it Atitlan, and we know where that story is going. Absolutely. But they give a specific date when they landed in the Yucatan at 9,600 BC. That's only 100 years after the Great Flood. Right. Now, take that back to Egypt for a second. Plato, who's uh, the academics like to beat up like a pinata uh, all the time, They'll say, oh, yeah, he made it all up. No, Plato got the story from Solon, Solon who's a yeah. scholar who went to Egypt, who talked to the Egyptian priest, and they said, you know, you've got to hear this story because it was we inherited the story from our predecessors. And, uh, you know, 9,600 years before your time, there was this uh, island continent. There was one in the south in the Indian Ocean. There was one over that way in the east and uh, to the west. Uh, and uh, the whole place went down for the third time. It sank during a global flood. Well, the date is exactly the date that was also in the Chilam Balam. You can't make those two up because the Egyptians and the Maya are on opposite sides of the world unless there was contact and they were borrowing from the same book, which I actually believe there was a lot of contact because there are people, uh, effigies of Egyptian uh, pharaohs in Ushmal in Yucatan, and there's a visiting Maya priest in the temple of Karnak in Egypt. So the two were going backwards That's and forwards right. and the languages also overlap. Mm, it makes this sense. has nothing to do with Scotland, by the way. That's fine. Does. You know, Hey, listen, it does <laughs> remember buy this book, Scotland. <laughs> hey, listen, you brought it up almost with the addle and I got to throw this in here. Um, 
the box saga introduces Atlantis as a time period. Have you ever heard that before? No, they I say that it's phonetically alt land ice, as in all land ice, as in they're talking about this period where they were cut off yeah. and they were surviving and thriving and, you know, technology, whatever, where the rest of the world was covered in ice, or at least it the northern hemisphere. Yeah, the first ice age. I mean, the only habitable areas between the tropics. So essentially, two thirds of the planet was uninhabitable, right? Unless you're an Eskimo, uh, which is feasible. <laughs> yeah. So you got to think that, uh, and also the oldest temples on Earth tend to be located around between the tropics and not far from them. Uh, so that right. would make sense that if you had this big landmass in the middle of the Atlantic, uh, which by all intents and purposes, just about everybody in the ancient world uh, accepted this to be true. And recently they, they, got, they actually dug up and found the original coastline with sand and water bearing plants and, uh, water, and um, rocks full of oxygen that used to be above uh, water in 13,000 BC when the first of the ice ages hit. So we now have the evidence to back up that that whole area, the middle Atlantic Ridge went down in three big stages and very dramatically so. So uh, yeah, that back then Atlantis would have been kind of by itself a, a wonderful paradisial landscape in between yeah. two major areas of ice on the planet. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I like that. So you know, you've you've helped me really kind of just connect more dots, and ha you've given me a million more questions, which is exactly <laughs> the goal. If anybody's looking for dead ass answers, that's going to finalize anything. You're, you're in the wrong business because yeah. this is ever evolving. It's a, it's a, an, a opening Lotus flower, if you will. Yeah. I don't think we ever get fun. to the end. <laughs> that's what makes it fun. is the fact that we don't know everything, you know, even I don't know everything. And of I hope I never will because it keeps the door open. It keeps you inquiring. It keeps moving the stakes forward. Uh, yeah, not knowing where you're going sometimes is a good idea because you don't have a predetermined theory to put the information into. The, the idea is that you got the information and then it creates the theory. That's much more fun because you have no idea where it's going to go. And I can tell you, and especially with Ireland and, uh, and uh, the origins of Scotland, it was great fun not knowing where it was going to go. Yeah. And, uh, understanding that even in the, um, you know, the islands of Lewis, for example, the west coast of Ireland, of Scotland, you have a shining one that appear there, priests that used to walk the Avenue of Stones of Kalanish, which is one of the most beautiful, intact stone circles in the whole planet. And they were still remembering this a few thousand years ago. So there was a part of these priests that actually used to go down the summer solstice. They were still called the Shining People. In fact, they found a pier there uh, on, at the bottom where they used to come all the way from the Mediterranean. And these are the people that eventually would become the Druid. Uh, because the same mannerism, the same teaching, the same uh, essence of remembering things for 10 years, the Druids inherited that uh, information. And that's why the Druids were also very big in that part of the world. Mm, the snakes, the snakes that had to be chased out, I would exactly. say. Yeah. <laughs> and some would say they came over to our neck in the woods. I ah, the snakes. Well, that's a funny story, isn't it? That Patrick, St. Patrick. Yeah. The, uh, of course, we celebrate it here snakes. more than in anywhere else in the country either. Yeah. New England is so drunk and so green on that day. And man, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I guess repression is a good idea if you remember how it really went down. Yeah. <laughs> he got rid of all the snakes in Ireland. But doesn't mm. that sound a bit preposterous? Well, it goes back to the story that the, uh, the title of office of all of these gods was the people of the serpent. So essentially, once you understand the law, of nature, which is electricity and magnetism, which behave like serpents, you are a person of the serpent. So there's nothing nefarious about it. And by the way, the, the gods of Central America, it's Zamna or not all his crew in Quetzalcoatl, they were called the Kanul, which in the local language is people of the serpent. Mm. Uh, so when Patrick gets rid of the serpents from Ireland, it's like a little nod of the church saying, hey, we finally completely abolished the uh, old bloodline, the divine bloodline from Ireland and Scotland. That was like a political move, but no, they were, they were still there. Always. It just went underground metaphorically and literally. That's right. Well, Freddie, this has been riveting and you've really helped me. Like I said, just come up with more and more avenues to travel down. And oh, I really appreciate your work and I appreciate what you do. I can't wait to show this, to, this book to my father who's taking a trip to Scotland. Oh, so really? I, I can't wait to gear him up for some things to look out for when he's over there. Well, and maybe I'll even time. inspire some, uh, some different directions in his plan. You know, maybe he'll be taking some, uh, some new adventures. Oh, I hope so. There's a lot of weird things up there and uh, mm. just don't tell it to the tourist. They might not believe him. <laughs> Fair <laughs> That's enough. not what that guide said. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> it's in this guy. <laughs> said something completely different. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, listen, Freddie, please tell my audience where they can find you if they don't already know. Oh, God, yeah. Please don't support that uh, billionaire that sells books and puts the uh, authors out of business <laughs> online. Uh, go to invisibletemple.com and you'll be there for a long, long time. Yes, you have a beautiful website with plenty of resources on there. I urge everybody to go check it out. Freddie, thank you again for coming back. And I can't wait to, to clink drinks in a couple of weeks and hear what Absolutely. you have to say. That's going to be great. Let's do it. All right, everybody, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Deep Share Podcast. If you want to hear more, then hit that subscribe button. Follow me on all the social places. And remember, think for yourself, but don't always believe what you think. Till next time. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, pacifaria. Enough, I get the point. <laughs> you meddle with the primal forces of nature. <laughs> and you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know, and if someone else knows, okay? <laughs> <laughs>